Breadbox Media Programming is brought to you by... Finding someone who shares your values in today's culture isn't easy. And being single around the holidays isn't easy either. That's why Catholic Singles created a website and app where single Catholics can meet and get to know each other that focuses on values, activities, and interests. For over two decades, Catholic Singles has been fostering deep relationships because your faith matters. Start today at catholicsingles.com. Ignatius Press is That's pleased Catholic to announce Singles. the first national book club created for Catholic schools. Ignatius Book Club for Catholic Schools was launched to support Catholic schools' dedication to forming the whole child, mind, body, and spirit. Ignatius Book Club for Schools partnered with leading publishers of children's literature to offer the best books and educational materials for all reading levels and interests. Head to ignatiusbookclub.com podcast and find wholesome books that delight, inspire, and enrich. CMF Curo is the country's first Catholic healthcare ministry to provide an affordable health sharing solution rooted in Catholic teaching and community. Learn more at mycatholichealthcare.com. That's mycatholichealthcare.com. CMF Curo, healthcare fully alive. Characters of the Reformation. I'm Father Dwight Longenecker. This is the fourth episode in which we consider the marriage of King Henry VIII of England to Anne Boleyn. In the first episode, we looked at the introduction to the book. We, in the second, we looked at Henry VIII and then his wife, Catherine of Aragon. And now we look at the disaster of his relationship with Anne Boleyn. You know, Henry VIII's undisciplined lust was an emblem also of his undisciplined greed. And we can't disconnect his lust for Anne Boleyn with his deprivation of the monasteries and the total destruction of a Christian order in England, all because the king was greedy and wanted more money, more power, and more pleasure. If you ever want to remember the six wives of Henry VIII, you can remember the old rhyme, divorced, beheaded, died, divorced, beheaded, survived. Henry VIII's famous lust for six different women, is a reminder to us today of the destructiveness of divorce. You know, when people say, oh, we have no-fault divorce. No, that's a lie. There's no such thing as no-fault divorce. There's plenty of fault in divorce. Divorce is something which is destructive to marriage, to a sacrament, to children, to the wounded spouse. Lust is very often thought of as a, a soft and an easy sin of the flesh, which is easily forgiven and overlooked due to human weakness. It's not considered to be a violent thing, but it is a violent thing. It's violent against life. It's violent against marriage. It's violent against children. It's violent against the social structure. And Henry VIII's monumental sin against marriage brought about a violence in that country, a violence against the church, which still reverberates down into the world today. So let's move forward now to Hilaire Bullock's Description and Explanation of Anne Boleyn Anne Boleyn is the pivot figure of the English Reformation. It was through her that the political and social phenomenon called Protestant England came into the world. She was not, of course, the cause of the movement, still less the cause of its final result. Innumerable causes converged toward that. 
but the movement would not have been launched, would not have been directed towards the goal which it ultimately reached, had not Anne Boleyn so completely dominated the King of England as to compel him ultimately to break with the unity of Christendom. Not only was Anne Boleyn not the cause of the great affair, but still less was she the inspirer of it. Least of all the actors, with the exception perhaps of Henry himself, was she filled with any conscious intention of effecting such a result. The personality to whom must be given that role of inspirer, the mind which planned the origins of that great change which broke England away from the church, was the mind of Thomas Cromwell. Anne, then, was neither the cause nor the inspirer of the first movement away from Catholicism. But she is what I have called her a pivot figure. It is, therefore, of the first importance to history to understand what this woman really was and the real place of her action in the whole scheme of the time. From her day to our own, it has been taken for granted by all national tradition and by every historian that she lay at the origins of the English Reformation. But latterly, there has arisen an effort to weaken or question this sound tradition and to explain in other ways the quarrel between Henry and Rome and the ultimate effect of it. This effort at supplanting true history by false is part of the general skepticism of our time, which is usually ready to accept anything new because new falsehoods sound more picturesque, as a rule, than well-worn truths. But there is here a more powerful motive— to make the origins of the change of religion look a little less ignoble than they really are. No, Anne remains and will remain at the origins of the catastrophe. It behooves us, therefore, to understand her and her effect as best we can. Anne Boleyn was from the Howard family. The Howards were semi-royal. They had a somewhat different character from all the other great English nobles, although the family was not remarkably old, and the reason for this particular character of theirs was that they stood for a younger branch of the Plantagenet family, which was the true royal blood of England. Anne Boleyn's father, Sir Thomas Boleyn, was a very wealthy man. He had considerable talent, especially as a diplomat, and was used by the government on many occasions. Now that we have understood who Anne Boleyn was in the high society of England at the time, the next thing to understand is her age, appearance, and character. We are not quite certain of the date of her birth. 1507 is most certainly wrong. I myself inclined to 1502 or 1503. At any rate, it was earlier rather than later. The point is of importance because her age has a good deal to do with our understanding of the way in which she intrigued and of her capacity for fulfilling her ambition. We may take it that around the year 1525, this young woman was something between 20 and 23 years of age and had thoroughly captured the heart of the king. She was about the court both as the daughter of her important official father and as an attendant upon the Queen Catherine, but also in another connection which it is important, though unpleasant to recollect, because it helps to explain Henry's action. Her younger sister Mary had already been the mistress of Henry VIII in very early youth, and he had got rid of her by marrying her off to one of his gentlemen. Anne's appearance was singular. She carried herself rather badly, was flat-chested and round-shouldered. She had a very thin neck, with the Adam's apple prominent and large, 
to which it was thought she owed her really fine contralto voice. She also had very long, dark, glossy hair and powerful black eyes. Beautiful in any ordinary sense of the word, she was certainly not. But she had a strange and not healthy power of fascination, at least over certain types of men. She was also slightly deformed. The little finger of one hand was double, and those who would flatter her called it two nails. People on the other tack roundly said it was that she had two little fingers. It was a defect which she always was at pains to conceal as best she could. I would put in here there was some other interesting gossip about Anne Boleyn. The people who were opposed to her said that the two little fingers was a sign that she was a witch. And there was another rumor going around that Henry VIII had actually also had an affair with Anne Boleyn and Mary Boleyn's mother, and that Anne Boleyn was actually the product of that uh, relationship. And so in falling for Anne Boleyn, Henry VIII was actually falling for his daughter and wanting to take her as his bride. This was a pretty nasty rumor, and when you look at the dates, it seems it's pretty impossible. Even though Henry VIII would have known uh, Anne and Mary Boleyn's mother, he would have had to have an affair with her when he was probably around 12 years old or something like that. So uh, the rumor that Anne Boleyn was actually his daughter uh, is just that, uh, a nasty and vicious rumor, but not true. Back to Belloc. Anne Boleyn used her fascination calculatedly and coldly, and she so used it from a very early age. When she may have been anything between her 16th and 18th year, more probably around 18, she so caught and entangled the heir of the greatest non-royal family in England, the Percys of Northumberland, that he was hopelessly in her power. He remained until his death full of that memory, long after he had to give her up, for when she found she had a chance of a higher game, she got rid of him at once. Meanwhile, she had a second string to her bow. Even at that early period, in another conquest of hers, Wyatt, a gentleman closely connected with Henry, not a pleasant character, and one who later, I think, traduced her, pretending that she had been his mistress as quite a young girl. She would not have ruined her chances by yielding to a man in Wyatt's position. It was probably as early as this time, 1521, that the king, who was then a man of thirty, began to look at her and consider her. He had probably also, about that time, and certainly immediately afterward, given up living with his legitimate wife Catherine. Although there was no outward semblance of any breach between them, he had already had other adventures, and that illegitimate son born to him by Elizabeth Blount, a lady who had been an old playmate of his in early youth. We have seen also how he had taken Anne's sister Mary for a mistress and discarded her, I've said that this point should especially be borne in mind because it helps to explain the way in which Anne, who seems to have had much more willpower than her sister, attracted him. He was evidently drawn to the family type. We must presume, of course, that Henry at this early stage did not intend marriage. He sent sharp orders that the engagement with young Percy should be put to an end, and he used Wolsey as his agent in so doing. We have no documents, we can only judge by the nature of the case and by what followed, but it is fairly clear that sometime before, or in the very early part of 1525, when Henry was thirty-four years of age, and Anne well over twenty, perhaps as much as twenty-three, there was some arrangement between them, and that Anne had already given Henry to understand that she would not be his mistress, 
but would envisage marriage if he could get rid of Catherine. In that year, her father was raised to the peerage and given a new and more prominent position, and in that year we also have large gifts from Henry to Anne. It does not follow that Henry had thus early accepted the idea of marrying Anne. He probably still thought she would become his mistress at last, and to attempt the repudiation of Catherine, the niece of the Emperor of Germany and the King of Spain, the most prominent woman in the greatest family in Europe, would be a very serious business indeed, and Henry's hesitating and uncertain character would hardly come to a decision at once in such an important matter. So in the summer of 1526, he had taken the first steps towards getting the marriage with Catherine annulled, upon the plea that the original dispensation for marrying his deceased brother's wife was invalid. In 1527, he took open steps in this direction, and for the divorce, as it was called, though of course it was an effort at annulment and not at divorce in the modern sense of the term. For in those days, when everybody was Catholic, divorce in the modern sense was uh, not conceivable. Thenceforward, for five years, Anne tyrannized him, more and more, until the unfortunate man was hardly sane in regard to her. She could do what she willed with him and drove him at her discretion to the most impossible public actions. In order to get her, he began that worrying of the Pope, which ended at last in the complete breach with Rome. What exactly the relations were between them during this interval we can guess rather than prove, though even our guess must be of a tentative character, as it is also of a displeasing one. Displeasing though it be, it is necessary to have some precision in the matter, because unless we appreciate the relations of these two, we shall not understand the complete subjection into which Henry fell. Anne would not allow him complete satisfaction until she was virtually certain, every obstacle having been removed by the death of the old, very Catholic and saintly Archbishop Warham, that even if the papal court did not grant annulment, Henry would take the matter into his own hands and marry her anyway. She thus began to live with Henry as though she were already married to him, somewhere about September or October of the year 1532. Before Christmas of that year, she was with child. Her chaplain, Cranmer, had been marked down for the Archbishopric of Canterbury. He was enthroned in the March of 1533, pronounced the marriage between Henry and Catherine to be null and void, and proclaimed Anne to be the legitimate wife of Henry immediately after, and crowned her queen in Westminster a few days after the sentence. Her child, who grew up to be Queen Elizabeth, was born in the September of that year, 1533. Now began the process which may be observed in parallel cases in all times and places, including in our own day. It was a case such as many of us have come across in our own observation. Henry, having been driven pretty well off his head by this woman's pertinacious handling of him and refusal for so many years to surrender herself completely to him, was, now that he obtained satisfaction, changed in her regard. She had a bitter tongue, not without wit, using the French language in which she was trained and in which she thought as well as spoke. She ridiculed Henry behind his back, and he got to hear of it. Her fine voice in singing had ceased to attract him. Perhaps it had also deteriorated. She had accumulated enemies by her violent fits of temper, which she had never restrained in her angers with Henry himself. 
So it was not only the weariness of Henry with her, but also active irritation against her which began to change her fortunes. He was tired of her. He began to dislike her. Soon he hated her. And if they still carried on, it was only because Henry hoped that she would give him an heir, the boy that he longed for. She probably would have done so but for his brutality, for a miscarriage which she suffered early in 1536 was by herself ascribed to his infidelity and roughness to her. She said she had been so pulled down by the whole business that her health had suffered. And we must remember in this connection that Henry himself had long been suffering from venereal disease. At any rate, a miscarriage she had, and what with his disappointment and his increasing loathing, Henry was determined to be rid of her. His character had deteriorated rapidly. Moreover, he was superstitious, and seems to have got into his head that she had bewitched him. An indictment was framed against her. She was accused of adultery with various people, including a couple of gentlemen about the court, one of the royal musicians of lower birth, and even adultery with her own brother. Thomas Cromwell was as determined as Henry upon her death, for it would get rid of a rival. Henry had already determined who should succeed her, a certain Jane Seymour, daughter of a small landed gentleman in Wiltshire, whose sons were employed at court, while Jane was herself a maid of honor. Henry and Cromwell used Archbishop Cranmer to ruin Anne by frightening and threatening her after a pretended friendship, and Cranmer's action was the more base, considering that his whole advancement and position were solely due to his having been a creature of the Boleyn family and their chaplain. The wretched woman fell into a hysterical condition at the approach of death. She was left uncertain whether she would be burned or decapitated. On Friday, May 19, 1536, she was beheaded with a sword within the precincts of the Tower of London by a headsman from Calais, specially brought over from France for the execution. Was she guilty of the misconduct ascribed to her? It is one of the most fiercely debated points in English history. Standing as she does at the origins of the Reformation, the favorers of that movement have been hot in her defense. On the other hand, those who desire to exculpate Henry as much as they can exculpate that detestable character like to believe her guilty, while for the defenders of the old religion, nothing was too bad to be put down to Anne. The accusations, especially that of incest, seem so monstrous that their very enormity is an argument in her favor. On the other hand, she was certainly unscrupulous in affairs of this kind, and she seems to have been quite unbalanced in the last year or two of her life. Some who have medical experience in these matters maintain that she suffered from a particular irresponsibility, which makes the charges credible enough. Queen Catherine had died before her. Henry's marriage with Jane Seymour, which took place immediately after Anne's death, was therefore quite legitimate in the eyes of the Church, and quite probably there would have been a reconciliation with Rome, had it not been for Thomas Cromwell's having already launched the policy of confiscating church property, beginning with the monasteries, a policy which created a vested interest of great power, which dictated against any kind of reunion with the Catholic Church. Anne's fatal action, therefore, had come just sufficiently late to start the ball of the Reformation rolling. She had not intended it, she had intended only to fulfill a petty and personal policy in which she triumphed only to bring about her own destruction. But she will remain forever 
in spite of lack of intention, the origin of that long movement which ended by the complete change of the English mind and character, and the supplanting, after long and heavenly contested struggle, lasting over 150 years, of the old Catholic England by the new and modern Protestant one which has taken its place. Thank you for listening to Characters of the Reformation. I'm Father Dwight Longenecker. I encourage you to go to my blog and listen to some of the other podcasts which are there. Also read my blog posts every day, browse my books, and be in touch. Thank you for listening. Breadbox Media Programming is brought to you by Jack Kane Ford. Find your next Ford Tough vehicle at KaneFord.com. Woodhill Community Center. Have a hand in the heart of the city. Support their mission with your donations at WoodhillCommunityCenter.org. Toyota in Nicholasville Superstore. Online consultants are standing by right now to help you find your next Toyota. Visit ToyotaOnNicholasville.com. Lexus of Lexington, home of the best-selling Lexus IS. Find yours today at LexusOfLexington.com.